0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a recent poll that has 62% of Americans believing that if Trump were president, the war in Ukraine would not have happened. This is a sad illustration of how little the public understands about the treasonous relationship Trump has with Putin, who controls him like a KGB officer controls an asset. For 40 years since the Soviets first supported Trump, he has been calling for the US to get out of NATO, and had he been re-elected, that is what Trump had promised to do. Joining us to discuss how Putin's invasion of Ukraine is happening in part because Trump was not able to neuter NATO in his second term is Craig Unger, the author of seven books including the New York Times bestsellers House of Bush, House of Saud and House of Trump, House of Putin. He has written about the Trump-Russia scandal for The New Republic, Vanity Fair, and The Washington Post. And his latest book is American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. And we will discuss his article at The New Republic, Donald Trump was everything Vladimir Putin could have wished for. Then, with Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau visiting Queen Elizabeth today, posing before a floral display of blue and yellow... The Colours of the Ukrainian Flag, we'll speak with Thomas Homer Dixon, who holds the University Research Chair in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, and is the Director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. His books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe Creativity and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, How We Can Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity and Violence. His latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril, and we'll discuss the impact of the war in Ukraine on the global food supply. Then finally, with Biden desperately trying to reduce the cost of gas at the pump while at the same time sanctioning Russian oil in order to punish Russia, which raises the price of oil, we'll speak with David Smaldi a professor of human relations at Tulane University and a senior fellow at the Washington office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. We will discuss the trip over the weekend by a top Biden national security team to Venezuela, hoping to replace Russian oil with Venezuelan oil as the U.S. and its allies put together a global ban on Russian oil and gas. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Craig Unger, the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers House of Bush, House of Saud and House of Trump, House of Putin. For 15 years, he was a contributing editor for Vanity Fair, where he covered national security, the Middle East and other political issues. He's a frequent analyst on NMSNBC and was a longtime staffer at New York Magazine. He's contributed to Esquire, The New Yorker, and many other publications. He's written about the Trump-Russia scandal for the New Republic, Vanity Fair, and The Washington Post. And his latest book is American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump, and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. And he has an article at the New Republic, Donald Trump was everything Vladimir Putin could have wished for. Welcome to Background Briefing, Craig Unger.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Craig. And you point out in your article that most Americans think that Russian President Vladimir Putin would not have invaded Ukraine if Donald Trump were president. That comes from a Harvard-Harris uh, poll released last Friday. It said 62% of those polled believe Putin would not have attacked Ukraine if Trump is still in office. And you point out, of course, that shows you the incredible ignorance of the American public. And I guess the clever way that Barr and this guy at the DOJ, Durham, who are doing this bogus investigation of the investigators, have really effectively changed the narrative or muddied the waters about what has already been discovered by the US government, by the Senate Intelligence Committee, and by the Mueller report about Trump's ties to Russia.
1: Right. I, I, you know, I've actually written two books on this subject, so it's a sort of sensitive point with me. But the whole Trump-Russia scandal is very, very important, and it's uh, important to understand it led directly to what's happening in Ukraine. And what you can see very clearly is Donald Trump, and this was reported by uh, uh, two Washington Post reporters, has said that he was going to get out of NATO in the second term. And what what Putin obviously was hoping for is that if Trump had been reelected, uh, NATO would have just folded. Uh, America would have withdrawn from NATO. We wouldn't see the, the very, um, the enormous uh, unity we see from the West in, in fighting the Russians, and they would have just marched in without having to stage much of a battle.
0: Well, there's also, of course, the incredible tragedy here that what the Ukrainians are depending upon largely are Stinger missiles and the Javelin missiles. And if you trace the history of how Trump has worked with Putin to prevent the Ukrainians from getting the Javelin missiles, it goes back. First of all, his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was the right-hand man of Yanukovych, who was Putin's gangster and puppet that the Ukrainian people kicked out of the country in the Maidan revolution, the revolution of dignity. Then Manafort, uh, who is Trump's campaign manager, they change the platform of the Republican party to strike out a phrase that said, giving lethal aid to Ukraine, they struck that out. And then, of course, we know about the uh, impeachment uh, effort. And by trying to shake down Zelensky to get dirt on Biden, Trump was holding up the delivery of the javelins. Now, had the Americans delivered these javelins years ago when they were needed, the Ukrainians could have been trained better for the use of them. They would have had more on hand. Now they're trying to rush them in through Lviv and through the West there, which is uh, I'm not sure they're even getting to them anymore because they're under siege. So if you track the story of the Javelin missiles, that, to me, is, a, is the sort of perfect metaphor for Trump's treachery.
1: Right. And, 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 and you're absolutely right, bringing in Manafort. Manafort uh, got his operations, got, I, I believe, a total of $75 million from uh, Putin's oligarchs. And he uh, started all these disinformation campaigns, phony think tanks. Uh, He crafted Yanukovych into a Western-style politician who was taught to say things like, I I feel your pain. And, of course, he completely betrayed the Ukrainian people when he got into office. While he campaigned, he said he was going to lean towards Europe when, in in fact, he was really another Putin puppet. And that led to the events of uh, Maidan in 2014. Uh, so this is part of a much longer struggle that goes back really over twenty years, and if you look at putin's gold it's been primarily create the footprint of the Soviet Union of the old Russian Empire even before that, and Ukraine is absolutely crucial to that. It is the biggest country entirely within Europe, and without with it your uh, Russia becomes an empire without it russia's a an impoverished state really.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Craig Unger, the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers House of Bush, House of Saud, House of Trump, and House of Putin. He has written about the Trump-Russia scandal for the New Republic, Vanity Fair, and the Washington Post, and his latest book is American Compromat: How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. And he has an article, The New Republic, Donald Trump was everything Vladimir Putin could have wished for. But Trump's... Treachery in working with Putin and well, starting working with the Soviets, and then later with Putin, starts what over 40 years ago, in the what in the mid 80s, he started his properties started to launder Russian organized crime money and money that the KGB was stealing from the treasury, the Soviet treasury as as the country collapsed, and as your books have pointed out, Craig Unger, that you know billions went through. Trump properties. And then starting in 87, the Russians arranged a trip to Moscow where he was there, arrived on on July the 4th of 1987. And that's where there is the rumors that uh, they set him up in a honey trap. But as soon as he got back from that first trip to Russia, which was organized by Intourist, which is a KGB front, he then take he goes up to New Hampshire tests the waters for running for president, and then puts out these full-page ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and uh, the Boston Globe, t- basically arguing that the U.S. should get out of NATO. So when you started out the conversation, Craig, by saying that Trump planned any second term to pull the U.S. out of NATO, and that's why Putin, in a part, is going to war against Ukraine, because he thought he, could, he wouldn't have to go to war against Ukraine if Trump became president again or won the second term but now that biden's won he feels he has no choice so walk us through this 40-year project of trump to get the u.s out of nato at the behest of the russians
1: right well i'll go back even further in 1980 and as you know one of my best sources on this is a man named yuri spetz who was a major in the kgb now lives in the united states But in the 1980s, he was based in Washington Station, and he was working for the Soviets, recruiting uh, spies from the West to serve the Soviet Union. And he told me that in in, uh, uh, 1980, uh, Trump had bought uh, hundreds of TV sets. This is for Trump's first successful project, the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is right next to Grand Central Station. And like any hotel, uh, it needed... Uh, television sets for the hotel rooms, and it was started in 1980, and Trump ended up buying the television sets from uh, a small electronic store called the Joy Ludd store that happened to be owned by a Soviet émigré, and according to Yuri, the the, the owner, uh, was really working as an spotter agent for the KGB, that is, his role was to spot new recruits who could be cultivated by the KGB and in selling those uh, TVs to Donald Trump, uh, presumably at a cut rate price, at an offer he couldn't refuse, he was sort of opening the door to the KGB to Donald Trump. That was step one. Um, a couple of years later, uh, Trump ended up meeting with uh, a woman named Natalia Dubonina, uh who was working in the UN library for the Soviet mission. And her father was ambassador to the U.N. He was the Soviet ambassador to the U.N. And they wooed Trump. And this is typical uh, KGB fair, according to Yuri. If you want to know how how, uh, agents recruit you, they befriend you. They flatter you. And they flattered Trump. And Trump, as we all know, is a bit of a narcissist. And they told him how wonderful they thought Trump Tower was, which was a glitzy new... Uh, a crown jewel in the Trump empire built in 1983 and they wanted one in Moscow. Uh, So before long, it was actually the KGB uh, that invited Donald Trump to Moscow in 1987. And it it happens that my source, Yuri, was also back at KGB headquarters at the time Trump was flown over. And Yuri was Uh, working with his own recruits. And he was teaching them, pumping them full of uh, KGB talking points. And it seems very, very likely that Trump was being force-fed these KGB talking points. Because, as you said, as soon as he returns home, he starts running for president, which is a shocker, really. Let's let's remember this in time. This is a time when Donald Trump has just met Jeffrey Epstein, and he's cavorting with Jeffrey Epstein at all these sex parties. But suddenly, he gives interviews to the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, in which he says he all the puts forth all these weird foreign policy statements. And when he runs for president and goes to New Hampshire, dipping his toe in the presidential waters, he takes out a full page ad in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. And it's got one talking point after another that could have been force fed him by the KGB. Meanwhile, by the way, um, my, my source Yuri is back in Moscow at KGB headquarters in Yasinoneva, where their counterintelligence is stationed. And they, celebra- they circulate sort of a celebratory table saying that they've uh, just done a really successful, active measures operation in the United States, active bankers means uh, propaganda or disinformation, and they attach to it an ad taken out in the New York Times and Washington Post and so forth, and it is signed by, by Donald Trump, and it, 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 it critiques NATO, it goes after our alliance with Japan. Uh, it's very unusual talking points that I've never heard any other American politician make. And that's Donald Trump, and he's making them uh, just after the KGB has cultivated them.
0: And uh, he's making them to this day. By the way, in Florida on Saturday, Craig, (laughs) even Pence is now criticizing him for praising Putin while Putin slaughters Ukrainians. Trump is obviously trying to do a little bit of a cleanup. And he said that if he were president, he would send... F-22 Raptors disguised as the Chinese Air Force into Ukraine and bomb the bleep out of the Russians. I mean, how incredibly stupid is that? I mean, do you think that the Russians would think that the Chinese have American planes? I mean, you know, this guy is its such a danger. But again, it's amazing how Barr and others and the right-wing press, the Fox News and stuff, and this character Durham at the DOJ have really muddied the waters. It's just, you know, that the poll that indicates that the majority of Americans think that Trump would be there would be no war in Ukraine if Trump were president it just illustrates the frustration that exists amongst the the FBI counterintelligence people that, that I've talked to, and I'm sure you have, that they know that this guy's a traitor, but somehow. The message can't get through. Will will it ever get through?
1: You know, I, I don't really know. And I, I really, you know, I've been a reporter for more than 50 years and it's really depressing the way. I mean, we saw the death of newspapers as a result of the ascent of the Internet. And then with social media, I think it's gotten much, much worse. And the people are siloed in their own little um, enclosed Spaces and they don't in t- take in any real information, so you've seen them dismiss rather e- easily the whole Trump Russia uh, scandal. And you know, I think now when you start to see that we're, we're starting to go after some of the oligarchs and seize yachts and so forth, I can only hope that that will uh, cross over onto American borders because they're an because alt- Trump, in effect, is a Russian oligarch. And if you look at the huge law firms in Washington, D.C., that are representing all the Russian oligarchs, you can trace the flow of money to a large extent. Uh, There there are lots of big time lawyers. They they got in the DOJ under uh, William Barr when Trump was president. Uh, They they became head of the criminal division and they stopped prosecutions of a lot of these uh, Russian oligarchs. Um, There are also uh, the lawyers at the big white shoe law firms like Jones Day. Many of them make over $10 million a year. And this is the kind of Russian money that uh, uh, is coming from Putin. And I think we have to stop it in our borders. We have to uh, have much tighter regulations against money laundering and real estate and so forth. And uh, I hope we have the will to do that.
0: Well, as you point out in your article, though, you have to give the Russian intelligence services credit. I mean, the KGB and then now the successor organizations, and particularly the SVR, not so much the FSB and the GRU, they're, they're kind of thugs, but the SVR still has some talented people. And you point out, in April of 2016, after Trump had won a series of primaries, he staged his first event presenting his foreign policy at the Mayfair Hotel in Washington, D.C., hosted by Dmitry Simes, a Russian who worked in U.S. think tanks. Now, I used to interview Dmitry years ago. He was the go-to guy for, to, to sort of make sense out of what was happening in the Soviet Union. He, of all places, he was the head of the Nixon Library, for God's sake. And all the while he was a KGB operative. And then just more recently, he got out of town when uh, they closed in on him, like, finally. And now he's he has his own show on, on Russia's main Channel One, right? the state-controlled pro-Putin uh, outlet. So he's right. an and example, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely, and it's a good one. Uh, you know, um, he, uh, in April of 2016... He was hosting Donald Trump's first press conference at which uh, Trump announced his uh, foreign policy. And and think about this. Trump's foreign policy is being presented by a guy who, as I show in, Amer- uh, in American Compromise, um, was really a, an asset for the KGB. And Yuri Schwitz told me about this firsthand as he, he kept seeing uh, Dmitry Simes in, in Russia, in Moscow, and he... he he thought he was a likely candidate to recruit, and he immediately went to his superior and said, hey, this guy looks like he has potential. And his superior said, well, let me check him out. And then his superior came back and said, no, 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 don't bother. He's already one of us. You know, And, and that's what, one thing you find here is the way um, the KGB was able to establish assets and let them function in plain sight. Another example I give in the book uh, is uh, with Donald Trump Jr. And Donald Trump Jr. in October of 2016, this is one month before Trump was elected, uh, flew to Paris. He gave uh, a lecture before a French think tank um, and he was paid $50,000 or more for for it. Um, All of that's legal, but the French think tank happened to be a front for, for Russian. And it was run by one of the people running it, it was a woman named Rhonda Cassis, who is uh, Syrian, but she lives in France. She's very c- close to uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad. She's also very close to Sergei Lavrov. And she gave Donald Trump uh, marching orders for uh, what Russia wanted Trump to do when he became president. And sure enough, Trump did exactly that. He yanked American troops out, and our allies, the Kurds, were decimated as a result, and there were were hundreds of thousands of refugees.
0: Well, yeah, but when Russia moved into Syria, that's when the exodus of refugees happened, and they were flooded into Europe, and they helped fuel right-wing parties in Europe because of the backlash, and also they helped fuel uh, Brexit, all of which are Putin's objective. So he definitely has a comprehensive way to screw with the US and weaponize refugees, which is what he's doing now in Ukraine, dumping all these people, even though he's now saying they all have to go to Belarus and Russia, which, of course, is a non-starter. But they're all fleeing into the West, and that's going to to be a huge burden for um, the frontline NATO states. And if he can depopulate Ukraine, uh, he has less... People to police, and he can then move Russians in. So, this guy is totally evil.
1: Yeah, I don't know it, it, it's absolutely astonishing, and 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 you're absolutely right. This is part of the strategy, causing all those refugees, uh, is a fuse uh, lights the fuse and ignites the right wing populist nationalism that we've seen uh, here in the United States. And I, I've got to wonder how the Republican Party is going to deal with this, because uh, we know how they dealt with uh, the influx uh, from south of the border by caging children and so forth. Uh, What are they going to do? What is going to be their position on uh, these uh, Europeans who are now refugees uh, as a result of Putin with Trump's encouragement?
0: Well, Craig, let's hope that the American people finally figure out what's going on. The Bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report says it all. It's all there as clear as day, Uh, but somehow it's not getting through. I thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Ian. I appreciate it.
0: And again, I've speak speaking with Craig Unger, the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers House of Bush, House of Saud, and House of Trump, House of Putin. For 15 years, he was a contributing editor for Vanity Fair, where he covered national security, the Middle East, and other political issues. He's a frequent analyst on MSNBC and was a longtime staff... Writer at the New York Magazine and contributor to Esquire and the New Yorker. And he's written about the Trump-Russia scandal for the New Republic, Vanity Fair and the Washington Post. And his latest book is American Compromat: How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. And he has an article, The New Republic, Donald Trump was everything Vladimir Putin could have wished for. We're going to take a pre-station break. We're back discussing the impact of the war in Ukraine on the global food supply.
2: Калинка моя, в саду ягода, малинка, малинка. Калинка, калинка, калинка моя, в саду ягды.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Homer Dixon, who holds a University Research Chair in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, and is the Director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Between 2009 and 2014, he was the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation, and his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, Can We Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity, and Violence. His latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Homer Dixon. Very good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And today at Windsor Castle in the UK, Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau uh, visited with the Queen, who has recently had COVID. They posed before a display of blue and yellow flowers, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. I understand that there's a substantial
3: Ukrainian population in Canada. Is that true? That's right. I think it's the second or third largest in the world uh, outside of Ukraine. So uh, it's, an, it's a deeply rooted and quite politically influential population in the country. And the former foreign minister, Krista Freeland, she's from Ukrainian parents, is she not? Yes. Well, she has, she's partially, has partial Ukrainian extraction. Um, uh, she's now the deputy prime minister and the finance minister. So by many accounts, really, uh, other than the prime minister, the most powerful politician in Canada.
0: So Trudeau has also met today with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte. So, I mean, he's obviously working with Biden, but they, they're they all working on, as far as I know, they're working on trying to find a kind of plan B here because so far nobody's been able to stop Putin and there is no possibility of a NATO no-fly zone over Ukraine, because that could lead to World War Three and nuclear war. So I am assuming that this effort to ban Russian oil and gas is underway. Is that is that your understanding that he, he might be
3: involved in that? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, in some ways that would benefit Canada, because we could at least partially step into the breach with our oil exports. Uh, It's the last major sanction that can be leveled against Russia uh, that will have a a really substantial impact. I mean, there there are things we can do to go after the oligarchs or their properties in London, for instance, uh, fairly targeted sanctions on specific individuals. But uh, the last major uh, sanction that we can level against the whole country is really uh, 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 stopping the import their energy exports, oil and gas. And that, of course, will have just huge impacts, especially on Europe, uh, because of the dependency of Europe on on uh, Russian gas and Russian oil. So let's talk a little, if we can, about the impact of
0: this war in Ukraine on the global food supply, because Ukraine is the world's
3: greatest sort of black soil producer of grain, is it not? That's right. In fact, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, About 29% of the world's wheat exports come from those two countries alone. And Russia's in the process of basically closing off uh, the Black Sea ports, Ukraine's Black Sea ports, so it won't have any ability to export any wheat it does produce, any grains it produces, uh, although I expect that this spring very few uh, Ukrainian farmers will actually be planting so this is going to have a huge impact. Also, Russian exports will probably be affected by financial sanctions. So we have a uh, very substantial food supply problem in the world already. And, and just uh, if you look at the futures prices for wheat, uh, uh, on the commodities markets, the wheat prices are soaring. They've just shot straight up just in the last few days. And some people are predicting that wheat prices might quadruple by the end of this year. But my understanding is that all agricultural products, just
0: about all, will be affected because fertilizer, which is particularly important, particularly in third world countries, yes. um, it's largely produced through potash, which is there's a lot of potash in Russia and also in Belarus that's sanctioned. Also, natural gas is needed to produce ammonia to make the ammonium nitrate for other fertilizers. So... That seems to be where it's really going to impact the entire global food supply, not just with wheat. Yes,
3: I think that's right. And uh, so any restrictions on Russian natural gas exports will, of course, affect the fertilizer markets. I don't think we fully understand what the kind of cascading implications of all of these changes are. Uh, We are, frankly, crushing the Russian economy, and I'm not opposed to those sanctions by any means. But I don't think we really understand the second and third order implications of a lot of this, especially among these interacting systems like the global financial system, the energy system, the food system. Uh, there are tipping points in these systems uh, that we can't easily anticipate. So I'm actually quite worried about where we go from here, um, independently of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and the specific military situation.
0: So you had earlier read an article that was in the Toronto Globe and Mail that got a lot of global attention on basically uh, alerting Canada's national security community to the possibility of a Trump presidency in 2024, which would be catastrophic. Trump, of course, essentially promised that he would pull out of NATO in a second term. And an earlier guest on today's program made the case that indeed, the invasion of Ukraine might have been a consequence of the fact that Putin was counting on Trump getting reelected and, and since that didn't happen, the idea of having Trump able to neuter NATO from within, and it's worth pointing out that Trump, for the last 40 years, going back to 1987, when he took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe, after having made his first trip to the Soviet Union, calling on the U.S. to get out of NATO at the time, which didn't make any sense, he has been essentially carrying the Russians and now Putin's water for 40 years. So do you see a connection there? Because it seems to me that, you know, it's pretty obvious that we dodged a bullet in 2020, but we may not dodge a bullet in 2024, as you were warning in your piece.
3: Yes, uh, although I think that it's not clear that this particular Military confrontation was stimulated by any particular possibility that Trump might be returning to power and neutering NATO. I mean, the uh, I, I think the the specific uh, catalyst for Putin was uh, uh, the moves by Europeans and NATO and Ukraine uh, in November to open up more. Vigorous dialogue on the issues of uh, entering NATO, Ukraine entering NATO, and the European Union. I think that was kind of a tipping point issue for Putin at that point. But he's had a, you know, to use the old expression of being as bonnet about Ukraine for a long time. He wants to reestablish uh, uh, what uh, experts like Fiona Hill have called the Russian Imperium, the old Russian Empire. Um, to reclaim Russia's status as a superpower in the world, to reconfigure the European security architecture, so uh, it, this was going to happen sooner or later. He's been he has been uh, uh, preparing for this fight for a long time, uh, training his forces in places like Syria. Um, and but I think he completely misunderstood the situation on the ground. I think one of the really extraordinary things, a, a positive. Spillover effect or tipping point that we largely didn't anticipate is how this crisis has rallied democracies around the world, how it's pulled NATO together, uh, the way they've moved so fast to get enormous quantities of arms to the Ukrainians. Uh, It's actually um, it's actually caused kind of democratic rallying and and uh, a recognition I think for many people around the world of what we could lose if we let these authoritarian leaders. Outside of Russia, and many of whom admire and have lauded Vladimir Putin, if we let them uh, proceed down their pathways of taking our societies increasingly towards authoritarian uh, governments, so so it's been a, a lesson. As you know, you, you, dictatorship leads to war, as we're seeing here, and I think it's woken a lot of people up to what the to what's at stake uh, if we continue down the kind of pathway we've been on on in the last few years.
0: Well, one of those authoritarian leaders is none other than the leader of the Republican party here in the United States, Donald Trump.
3: Yes. Now, um, you know, Donald Trump is an arch isolationist. He would say, I don't want to get involved in any wars, but he's also very happy to let Putin expand his imperium and his reach, geopolitical reach in, uh, Europe and Asia. Uh, and, uh, and a world with a lot of authoritarian regimes is going to be a much more violent place. And one of the most well-established uh, social science laws within the broad field of international relations theory is that democracy democracies tend not to go to war with each other. It's called the it's called democratic peace theory. Uh, and uh, and so the more democracies we have, the more peaceful the world is in general. And the more dictatorships we have, the more war there is and violence, among other things dictators tend to want to distract attention from internal problems by picking fights with external uh, external um, created or manufactured enemies. I think that's partly what's happening here with Vladimir Putin. His economy hasn't been growing very well. He has to try to reinforce his legitimacy at home and starting a war with uh, a manufactured enemy outside is a tried and true way of doing that kind of thing. So-
0: One of the things that I fear, Tad, is that as we watch helplessly as the Ukrainian people are slaughtered, and this will place pressure on our governments and other Western governments to do something, and as I mentioned earlier, there's a limit so you can do because of the possibility of nuclear war, and Putin has already made threats in that regard. Do you think that's going to have a, a negative backlash? I mean, already the Republicans here in the United States are blaming it all on Biden's weakness, and a recent poll indicates that uh, 62% of the American people think that if Donald Trump were president, the war on
3: Ukraine wouldn't be happening. No, that's completely nonsense. I I mean, it really is. If anything, Biden has shown remarkable uh, strength and and acumen here in rallying Europeans, especially in the lead up to this attack. The way that American intelligence was released uh, to try to undercut the Russian rationale for for the invasion. It was really masterful and the uh, very vigorous negotiations and conversations that happened between the United States and other NATO allies in the lead up meant that NATO was very well positioned as soon as the the attack was launched to, for instance, move in enormous quantities of weapons into Ukraine to help them defend their country. But I should say, you know, to go to the first part of your question that I think the I think the risk of of nuclear war here is is real. Uh I I am just in fact submitted another piece to the Globe and Mail where I outline my concerns. Uh Putin uh, may not be deterrable in the sense that it, you know in the old cold war days we relied upon what was called mutual mutually assured destruction uh, or MAD. It was the doctrine that that if one side attacked the other then it could be assured of a massive retaliatory response that would incinerate the attacking country. Um, Putin has made it pretty clear in various, uh, various circles and through some of his acolytes that he, he is prepared to risk it all. If he thinks that Russia is going to be defeated, and since he thinks of himself kind of symbolically as the as the embodiment of Russian of the Russian nation, that if he may even feel that if he goes down, if he is going to be defeated politically or assassinated, that he will be prepared to uh, take the world with him. There was an extraordinary statement on uh, a leading Russian news program recently by uh, uh, a news broadcaster who's known as known to be very close to uh, Vladimir Putin, he said that, uh, you know, the principle is uh, if if uh, uh, if Russia can't be in the world, what's the use of preserving the world? It was an extraordinary thing to say. And uh, so it really suggests that the stakes for Putin are almost apocalyptically high. Well, I thought you would run out of
0: time, but... We've never had in geopolitics before the combination of national
3: security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. So it's all in the hands of this one individual when you think about it, and and we don't really understand what's going on in his mind. I mean, it's extraordinary that we've created an international system where the lives, well-being of literally hundreds of millions of people depend upon the whims of one individual like this. Uh, Maybe if we pull through this, uh, this particular crisis, We should give some broader thought to how we can structure the international system so that kind of thing is impossible. Well, Thomas Hammond-Dixon, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Homer dixon who holds a University Research Chair in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, and is the Director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Between 2009 and 2014, he was Founding Director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation, and his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, Can we solve the problems of the future and environment, scarcity, and violence? And his latest book is Commanding Hope The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the trip over the weekend by a top Biden national security team to Venezuela, hoping to replace Russian oil with Venezuelan oil as the US and its allies put together a global ban on Russian oil and gas imports.
3: I worked in your orchards of peaches
2: and prunes Slept on the ground in the light of your moon On the edge of your city you've seen us And then we come with the dust and we go with the wind Green pastures of plenty from dry desert
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Smilde, a professor of human relations at Tulane University and a senior fellow at the Washington office on Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates the Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. His research focuses on social movements, human rights and culture in Venezuela. And his recent publications include From Populist to Socialist and to Authoritarian Chavismo, Obstacles and Opportunities for Democratic Change, and the forthcoming book Venezuela's Transition to Socialism, Politics and Human Rights under Chavez, two thousand and eight to two thousand and twelve. Welcome to background briefing, David Smildy. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And oil uh, on Sunday topped $130 a barrel. It's down to about 120 now, but it's still high. And a recent poll indicated something like 70% of Americans are more concerned about the price of oil than they are about helping Ukrainians who are being slaughtered by Putin. So I guess the idea of transitioning away from oil is way on the back burner compared to our addiction to oil. I mean, it's a pretty sad state of affairs, isn't it? (laughs)
4: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, When you have, uh, you know, a major foreign policy issue and the United States and Europe have done everything to isolate Russia and its economy and extensive unprecedented sanctions, except for the oil industry because the United States is completely reliant on that. The whole the whole world, is, you know, Russia produces 11 million barrels of oil a day. And so uh, it's it's a big obstacle and uh, it is uh, very much a, a significant issue and motivation right now in the Biden administration.
0: So the Biden administration, clearly, it's probably their biggest concern in ter- and probably for the Democrats too in the midterms, is the price of gas. And they sent a delegation to Venezuela over the weekend. So tell us about uh, what you've learned about what went on in those talks.
4: Well, we haven't had any official statements of what actually happened in in those talks or what results or what agreements, if any, they, they came to. But it's very clear. You know, we know that they talked about uh, US uh, citizens that are imprisoned in Venezuela. And of course, you know, one of the biggest issue was oil sanctions, and that is because the the Biden administration, along with the European allies, are discussing how they could possibly, you know, uh, put a stop to oil, to Russian oil uh, being exported to the West. But that's, that's a huge issue. And that, that's a huge issue uh, for, for gasoline prices. And so, you know, they need to find alternative supplies. And so it's no surprise that suddenly after three years, they're interested in, discussing Venezuela and oil sanctions you now Venezuela uh, of course now its industry has, is 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 much smaller than it used to be produces about 800,000 uh, or 800 uh, yeah 800,000 barrels of oil per day but uh, that oil is the, the kind of heavy oil that Russia now provides and in fact you know since the 2019 sanctions were uh, put forward on the Venezuelan in, uh, oil industry, Russian imports to the United States have doubled. And so and a lot of that is precisely because they were able to supply the heavy oil that uh, a lot of the U.S. refining capacity on the Gulf Coast specializes in. And so even though the Venezuelan exportation would not be that great in terms of the world market, wouldn't be enough to affect world prices, it would be able to, enough enough to affect Gasoline production within the United States, you know, and and overcoming uh, the deficit that Russia would leave.
0: And obviously, the sanctions started what in 2019 when yeah yeah when when,
4: when, when, the, when they recognized Juan Guaido yeah
0: yeah, but Maduro has grown closer to Putin, has he not,
4: over the years. Well, absolutely. I mean, even already during the government of Hugo Chavez, you know, there was a growing uh, cooperation with Russia. But during the Maduro uh, government, that has reached, you know, unprecedented levels. In fact, I think you can can safely say that Maduro is still president because of Russia's help. It was really in the past three years with the challenge that uh, uh, Juan Guaido, opposition leader Juan Guaido, uh, providing and declaring himself interim president and in being recognized by the United States and fifty some other countries, Maduro survived that basically with Russian support. I mean, Russian was its most stalwart ally, even at a time that China was sort of distancing itself from from Venezuela. And so, so it's not. You know it's going to be a tough sell to try and just you know it's not a question that they can just peel away maduro from putin you know that's a that's a established relationship and and the fact that the united states interest set changes in the past two weeks is not uh, you know something that's gonna, gonna necessarily completely flip uh, maduro immediately
0: And again, I'm speaking with David Smiley, a professor of human relations at Tulane University and a senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. His research focuses on social movements, human rights, and culture in Venezuela, and his recent publications include From Populist to Socialist to Authoritarian Chavismo, Obstacles and Opportunities for Democratic Change, and the forthcoming book, Venezuela's Transition to Socialism, Politics and Human Rights under Chavez, 2008 to 2012. Well, there is some leverage that the U.S. have, right? I mean, prior to this visit by... Biden's national security people to uh, Venezuela over the weekend. The Venezuelans signaled to Wall Street that they're interested in dealing with the $60 billion Wall Street bond debt by offering incentives, and they'd like to uh, have the sanctions removed on oil. So how much can the US offer Venezuela as opposed to uh, what they get from Putin in terms of obviously their oil industry is completely crippled
4: well i you know in in financial terms they can offer a lot because you know if if there's some normalization in oil you know venezuela has has been able to market its oil basically in black markets going through china but of course it suffers a deep discount on that so it doesn't get as much money for the oil that it exports if there was some sort of normalization and it could you know, uh, be able to sell its its oil to to the Gulf Coast refineries that pay cash, I and mean, that would be a really big plus for Maduro. And you know, further along, what what you just mentioned, you know, there's also financial sanctions that the U.S. has, that basically means that you know U.S. citizens and firms can't can't really buy or sell uh, Venezuelan debt, and so that really cripples uh, Venezuela as well. And so they would like relief from those sanctions as well. I, I don't I I haven't heard that they've discussed those this past weekend, but that's clearly an interest. And so Venezuela would have the interest in sort of developing some sort of momentum in in getting sanctions relief in uh, for for that reason.
0: Well, it's pretty clear that, again that this is a real concern of Biden: the price of oil and how it's going to affect the midterm elections. And now apparently the White House is planning on a spring trip to Saudi Arabia in spite of the fact that Biden basically said he was not never going to talk to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, because he was involved in the murder or authorized the murder of the Washington Post reporter. It looks as if Biden is relenting there and having to swallow his earlier promise not to talk to, even though recently, of course, he did talk to the father, King Salman who apparently is ailing, and it doesn't seem like there's going to be much to stop Mohammed bin Salman from ascending to the throne and becoming the king. So there's already some criticism, by the way, from uh, progressive groups and others. Ilan Omar, the member of the squad, was furious with Biden's prospect of hanging out with MBS while he's committing war crimes in Yemen. So... That sort of tells it all, doesn't it, how desperate the White House is to deal with the price of oil?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think it's an issue of, you know they they want to be able to uh, confront. Russia even more frontally than they have you no know? and and they're talking with the European allies about this as well but to do that to make that at all politically feasible you no know, they are uh they're gonna have to find they're gonna have to you know get increased oil production somewhere else from from somewhere else and so that's why you know the the talks with 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 Maduro in Venezuela and and the trip the to Saudi Arabia have the same motivation in that and of course these things these things are political costs in the case of of, uh, you know venezuela this has a really significant cost in south florida for biden uh and it's one of the reasons that they have hesitated to really do anything They basically over the past year have just continued on with the trump policies have made very little very little, few changes at all you no know, despite many calls from different parts of the u.s government and, and uh, other stakeholders that the u.s should engage Maduro and engage, you know, and, and, and discuss sanctions relief, they haven't done so because there's a political cost to it. So, but apparently, you know, in their calculus, they think that not, not handling the Russian invasion of Ukraine adequately and not addressing uh, fuel prices is probably a, a greater cost than the pushback they'll receive for talking to Maduro and, and visiting Saudi Arabia. And they're, they're probably right about that.
0: Well, Marco Rubio of Florida tweeted out, that rather than produce more American oil, Biden wants to replace the oil we buy from one murderous dictator with oil from another murderous dictator. So he's obviously on that bandwagon. He's, yeah. I might yeah. add that Rubio, they were all told when they went on a, a Zoom call with, with Zelensky in Ukraine, who's under a bombardment and death threats and hit teams looking for him, in the middle of his war, they were told, you know, while you're on the call, don't tweet. And, of course, Marco Rubio tweeted out the boasts that he was talking to Zelensky, which endangered Zelensky's life. But, I guess, a little off topic. (laughs) (laughs) But but the point is that the Venezuelan oil industry is so decrepit and so under-resourced that it, it won't come back quickly, will it? And it's pretty clear that, This is the number one priority for Biden and the Western leaders. There's not much they can do to help Zelensky, even though he keeps asking for a no-fly zone. They're afraid of that triggering a nuclear war, having U.S. planes shoot down Russian planes, which certainly would probably lead to escalation. So this seems to be all they can do. As things get worse in Ukraine and the humanitarian disaster it's just so horrible and people around in the world are just outraged by what's happening and their governments can't do much. It seems like the plan B now is for the governments of the world to get together and boycott Russian oil. So it's easier said than done, but what are the chances then of, I mean, I guess all the Saudis have to do is turn on the tap, right? They've got so much reserve and the ability to, uh, swing producers to turn on the tap. Venezuela is not going to come online for a while. Are there any other ways that you can replace Russian oil?
4: Uh, you know, <laughs> pushing a little bit out of my area of expertise uh, uh, regarding oil. I mean, I think you know, in in terms of Venezuela, the um, you know, currently they, they're producing about eight hundred thousand barrels a day that could be expanded, apparently, probably another 200,000 barrels a day. Uh, But it would probably take several years, three years or more to get that up to 2 million barrels a day. And so I think, you know, their uh, goal is to, you know, piece by piece, uh, try to try to get, you know, more oil from different places uh, to replace that Russian oil. I think it's actually it's more serious for Europe than it is for the United States, since they get more of their oil from from russia than the united states does and venezuela oil sort of fits the gap perfectly in in terms of uh getting that heavy oil to the gulf coast refineries but i think you know there there is a broader issue here as well that you know this is something that has really been long overdue that many people have been uh pushing for you know from from representative gregory meeks to senator uh, Chris Murphy had been suggesting that the U.S. engage Venezuela, even Juan Guaidó himself has has called for a plan for sanctions relief to get Maduro back to the negotiation table. And so really up until about two weeks ago, the, you know, everybody was sort of asking themselves why the Biden administration doesn't move and, you know, assuming that it was just about the political cost in South Florida. And so what this has done is sort of unblock that and, uh, you know, hopefully it'll generate a, a new dynamic in, in, you know, the Venezuelan conflict, which has really been stagnated so far. So I don't necessarily think it's going to be appeasing a strongman, as Marco Rubio puts it, um, but rather, you know, getting a negotiation. If it's handled well, they could get a, a significant negotiation process going again that could actually benefit the Venezuelan people in terms of democratic freedoms.
0: And basics like food, right? I mean, they're, they're starving. Their healthcare system in the country is completely collapsed, and millions. I think what percentage of the population have already fled to neighboring countries?
4: Well, it's it's at least ten percent, maybe as high as twenty percent. No, so so about five to six million uh, Venezuelans have left. You know, over the past five or six years, and so in the population that was at one time thirty million people. Um, you know that that's that's a huge chunk and there is still a, a very significant humanitarian crisis and that is um you know that's also uh, one important reason that people have been urging the united states to negotiate these sanctions not just sit on them because people are suffering from this and furthermore it doesn't help the political conflict and this is actually a, a good lesson uh to think through with in the case of russia as well you know, when these sanctions end up affecting people more than they affect the leaders you know in general and oftentimes what it does it ends up making them more dependent on leaders and, and thereby you know uh, weakening their hand vis-a-vis the leaders that are oppressing them so i mean the case of russia is a little bit different than the case of venezuela but but, you know, in general, it's, it's important to think about the effects of these sanctions and, and how they can be sort of uh, politically counterproductive, especially in sort of the medium and long term.
0: So just in closing, David Smiley, you mentioned that the Chinese are buying a Venezuelan oil at a discount. I understand that the Venezuelans owe China billions, right? I think they're, they're, they're their biggest debtor, aren't they? So are they getting it at a discount and is that paying down their debt? no. Maybe?
4: Really, really, what's happening? I mean, the Chinese have, have sort of set aside those debts for the time being. You know, given Venezuela's crisis, you know, Venezuela's paying some of them, but they've sort of, you know, they've been rolling them over. What What's been happening is that you know, China has been facilitating. You know receiving venezuela's oil and then remarketing it you no know? and and so basically sort of surreptitiously off the off the books uh receiving this and sort of selling it through black market through other countries and uh so that's that's the way they've been helping uh maduro of course that comes at a cost that means that venezuela gets less money for its oil than it's actually worth
0: right and they they smuggle the oil out with tankers that turn off their transponders,
4: yeah, so, that's exactly right, yeah yeah,. yeah.
0: well, David Marley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
4: All right, thank you, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Smaldy. He's a professor of human relations at Tulane University and a senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. His research focuses on social movements, human rights and culture in Venezuela. And his recent publications include From Populist to Socialist to Authoritarian Chavismo, Obstacles and Opportunities for Democratic Change, and the forthcoming book, Venezuela's Transition to Socialism. Politics and human rights under Chavez, 2008 to 2012. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
2: next door in Took the kids to the park and disappeared by